Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, and Damon Linker of The Week. The Bulwark's very own Kathy Young is sitting in for Linda Chavez this week, and our special guest is noted election attorney Benjamin Ginsburg. He played a key role in the Florida recount in 2000 and served in many Republican administrations or as uh, counsel to uh, Republican campaigns, including Mitt Romney's presidential campaigns in 2008 and 2012. And he is an expert on election law. So thank you one and all. Our first topic because of our esteemed guest is the state of election law in America. And I want to begin with you, Ben Ginsburg. You have written, first of all, you're very keen to reform the Electoral Count Act, and we'll get to that. But first, you've talked about some of the state laws that have been enacted since 2020, and you've called some of them pernicious. So I was hoping that you could give us a little bit of a tour d'horizon of these laws and distinguish what you think is pernicious from what you think is trivial or or not worth getting upset about. (laughs) Well, happy to do that. And thank you for having me. I'm not sure that any of it is not worth getting upset about just for different reasons. Okay. So much of the laws that you're referring to have taken place in specific states around the country. Republicans had a very good couple of cycles in 2018 and in 2020. And despite really expensive efforts by the Democrats, still won many down-ballot races in 2020. So had the legislative majorities to be able to put into law provisions that they thought would help them in elections. Some of those went too far, which were the ones I was referring to. And so a number of states with Republican legislatures and a Republican government have put in a set of laws, and they go from the administrative laws about how often you can vote and where you can vote to some new provisions that really are pernicious. And those are the provisions that take away from the tradition, the norm in this country of professional election administration. So that there are states that have put in laws that will allow poll watchers to have sort of in much more power in the polling place and potentially disrupting voting. That's a pernicious law. There are states where the counting, casting, and certification of elections have been removed from professional election administrators and given to politicians. And so that ultimately is taking away and perhaps tainting the vote of the people. So much of the controversy that we've heard about has been over things like laws that would change the number of early voting dates or deal with drop boxes, early voting, many things that were implemented in the pandemic year of 2020, which Republican legislatures tried and succeeded in a number of cases to roll back. I think it is 
worthwhile being very wary and even upset about the election subversion laws. I think the laws that go to election administration that I just went through are really ones that are bad for Republicans politically and as policy matters and as principle, but it is the battling between parties and not going to corrode the republic. So some of these laws, like the ones that roll back the number of days of early voting or you know things like that, that was what I had in mind when I mentioned laws that maybe one needn't get all that excited about. You seem to demur about that. You think no, no. that's problematic as well? or No, that's what I agree with you about, about not getting so upset about. Look, Georgia, for example, took away a couple of early voting days, giving them, I think, 24. And that created a great uproar. It was part of the Jim Crow 2.0, really sort of damaging rhetoric from President Biden and leading Democrats. But look, if you're going to get upset about a state that has 24 early voting days, then you can't ignore the states that have even fewer early voting days as a matter of course. Those include very blue Connecticut, which has 10 days, New York, which up until recently had 10 days, New Jersey, that has 10 days, all very blue states, and lo and behold, the state of Delaware that only has 10 early voting days. And of course, that came from the guy who was talking about Jim Crow 2.0. Yep. Okay. Now, you've also raised the alarm about the number of experienced election officials who are saying they are planning to leave their jobs, about 25%. And you've cited some of the law, like I think there's a law in Iowa, correct me if I'm wrong, that is going to impose civil penalties on election workers if they make an honest mistake. Fill us in on that a little bit. Yeah, that's one of the really pernicious laws aimed at election subversion, where election officials can face criminal penalties for really what amounts to just doing their jobs. And those are laws that have been put in in at least six states, including Iowa, that would charge election officials make them face the threat of criminal penalties for really minor things that are part of the electoral process. Providing too much help to a voter who asks questions can be criminalized in some states. And that's really, really dangerous. That goes sort of along with the problem of harassment of election officials, both physical and phone threats and mental harassments. And that's a real problem that is leading to experienced election officials resigning and leaving their jobs at an unprecedented rate. Who fills those jobs, of course, becomes important. At the very least, they'll be less experienced. But there is also a lot of election deniers who think it'd be really cool to run elections in the manner that Donald Trump called for in the 2020 aftermath. Yep. And Steve Bannon is actively recruiting people to fill those positions. Let's talk a little bit now about the Democrats and how they've handled this, because you and others have made impassioned pleas for reforming the Electoral Count Act because it is deeply flawed and opens the door to the kind of mischief that we nearly had in 2020. And, um, 
Do you have the feeling that there even now could be Republican support for an effort to overhaul this law and clean it up? Uh, Yes, I do. I I think we need to distinguish between what the Democrats tried to do with their For the People Act, Mm -hmm. which was an attempt to deal with this issue, but also a whole range of other issues. And that was kind of a bill with some good provisions that their wily political operatives got a hold of and really made a mush of the whole thing. The Electoral Count Act is a law that can be limited to just the process of picking a president, of validating the Electoral College. And what makes the Electoral Count Act capable of reform, where campaign finance and redistricting and the whole other group of issues in the For the People Act was not really the subject of bipartisan agreement. Nobody can figure out with the Electoral Count Act how to game the system for their political advantage. There are too many factual issues. You don't know who the vice president is going to be. It's going to be a Democrat or Republican. And of course, there was the whole controversy over Mike Pence's proper role. And you also don't know which party will be controlling the House of Representatives after an election. In a stalemate, the House plays a key role. So that the advantage that the electoral count reform has is that the political operatives can't really figure out how to do it. And the Electoral Count Act is a law from 1886. And if you've been um, watching the Gilded Age on television, you know that even in that scenario, the language was a little bit different back in that period. So there are reasons to clear up the ambiguities in the language now. And certainly it would make the post-November 2020 process, including January 6th, much more clear and less capable of repetition. Have you been following the reform efforts on the Hill? And do you have any sense of whether this is ever going to succeed, ever going to see the light of day? Yeah, I think it's a a question of when both parties feel comfortable with the timing. I think there is a great deal of agreement across party lines on a number of the key issues. I think there is agreement that the role of the vice president should be limited. I think there's agreement that the threshold for objecting to slates of electors should be increased. There's agreement that there's some need to define an election catastrophe that would stop people from being able to vote. So I think there is a great deal of agreement on that. I think the stumbling block, the toughest issue that seems to be true among both caucuses is precisely who gets to be the final arbiter of a disputed slate. Should it be the state officials? Should it be Congress? Should it be the federal courts? And what I think there is particular sort of uncertainty about is whether current federal law would allow a federal court all the leeway it needs to resolve the problem, or whether there needs to be a new federal cause of action for this, with conservatives being wary of creating a new federal cause of action and taking away too much authority from the states. That's interesting. Of course, the courts have, in the last five years or so, shown themselves to be one of the institutions in America that's been the least corrupted. And 
I'm inclined to trust the courts more than other branches at the moment. So a new cause of action doesn't disturb me. All right. Thank you. And we're going to bring our panel in in just a moment after this message. Think about all the things you do on your phone. If you're like me, you search the internet, you order groceries, you buy products, you do all kinds of things that you would prefer to keep private. You don't necessarily want to constantly be seeing ads for lamps and furniture, which I have recently experienced because we had a flood in our basement and I had to shop for those things online. But then the advertisers come at you one after another, clogging up your online experience. And the fact is your phone carrier collects data on whatever you're doing. They even admitted to it. They say it's so that they can better understand your interests, but really all they want is to sell your activity to advertisers. Stuff like the sites you visited and what you've been up to online. And the more info they can get on you, the larger their paycheck becomes, which is why you should use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that prevents your phone carrier from being able to see the sites you visit and sell it off to third parties. All it takes is one tap of a button and all of your network data gets encrypted and rerouted through ExpressVPN's secure servers for ultimate privacy. Not only does it shield your web browsing, ExpressVPN protects all of your network data so you can stay private even when using your favorite apps. Whether you're on an iPhone, Android, or even a tablet, ExpressVPN works on all your devices. The best part is one subscription can be used on up to five devices at the same time. I have my whole family using ExpressVPN too. My son absolutely swears by it. In fact, he was an early adopter. He started using it about five years ago when he was traveling abroad, and he finds it so helpful even at home. When your phone carrier tracks you, that's a gross invasion of privacy. You can either keep letting them cash in on you or visit expressvpn.com slash beg to differ to get the same VPN I use. Take your online privacy back and use my link to get three extra months free. That's expressvpn.com slash beg to differ. E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash big to differ. Welcome back. Kathy Young, do you want to weigh in? Have any questions for our guest? Uh, so I, one of the questions that I have is, are any of the current disputes over election laws related to voter ID? Is that still going on? And my related question is, in terms of disputes over voter ID, Do you believe that it would maybe be more productive to direct our sort of efforts in that direction to providing, you know, vulnerable voters with ID as opposed to fighting over voter ID rules? Well, I think voter ID is one of a number of issues that sort of arise in this debate over making it easier to vote or putting safety provisions in the law. Voter ID, which has certainly gotten an awful lot of heat, is very interesting. Stacey Abrams herself said that voter ID should be part of a compromise package and that, in effect, 
voter ID is a way to provide an appearance of credibility in an election that gives people peace of mind in the results. So according to court rulings, any state that puts in voter ID has to make ID available to anyone who needs it without cost. So that whole contentious issue of voter ID discriminates against certain voters has been taken away in effect by the need to provide free ID to people who need it and people who don't drive, plus the fact that in our society generally, ID is needed for more and more things. So I'm not sure we ought to be concentrating on voter ID as one of the issues in this debate. By the way, I think it's the case that even majorities of African-American voters approve of voter ID laws. So, yes. Okay, Bill Galston. I have a question about an aspect of the voting issue that we haven't yet touched on. The chances that it will emerge may be low, but the consequences, if it does, will be high. So let me set this up with a quotation from the U.S. Constitution. Article 2, Section 1, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, now, some right-leaning students of jurisprudence have worked this language up into what's now known in the trade as the independent state legislature doctrine. That is, that the state legislatures, even without gubernatorial involvement or approval, could, in fact, determine slates of electors as they choose and actually could withdraw or modify or create an exit ramp from the popular vote. So my question to you, Ben, is how credible is this argument in conservative ranks? And what are the chances that in a contested election, one or more states might attempt to go down this road? And if so, what would be the legal redress, if any? It's a great question. And um, one of those scenarios that I think people are paying more and more attention to, largely because the independent state legislature doctrine is now sort of morphing away from even choosing presidential electors to the recent spate of redistricting cases where both Republicans and Democrats have indicated that no one should be able to review a legislatively passed plan, including the state courts. And so it may be that that's the scenario of the legislature's power that may come up first. But the answer to the Article 2, Section 1 role is that historically, what state legislatures have done, given that power, is to pass laws in their states that say the popular vote in our states will determine who the electors are. Now, I think under that language, a legislature probably would have the power to say, we don't really care what the popular vote is, we're going to name the slate of electors. But of course, any legislature that did that would be unlikely to see itself reelected. And so that's, I think, not the scenario. Once legislatures pass the laws that say the popular vote is going to count, 
I think that if there is a certified count from a state, there's no way that legislatures have the authority to then change the law. It goes back to the Florida 2000 and even the Hayes-Tilden principle that you can't change the rules of the game after the game's been played. So to me, the independent state legislature doctrine is most likely to rear its head in a scenario where a state does not have a certified slate of electors. In other words, the state refuses to certify either because it's too close and they can't sort out in the recount and contest procedures by the appointed date who their electors are, that the election is just purely muddled. Or if you want to take the conspiracy theory, there are some of these elections officials who are now running as election deniers who will not certify a vote so that there are no electors from a state officially certified. In that case, a legislature might be able to say, and here's where the independent state legislature doctrine is most likely to come in, the state legislature says, we're not going to be disenfranchised. That's not the right result. So in this void of uncertainty, we are going to meet and certify a slate of electors so that our state is represented. The U.S. Supreme Court, there are three justices who apparently like the independent state legislature doctrine. So it is a real and live issue, but I think it does depend which scenario it comes up under, whether it's redistricting a contested election or a legislature behaving badly that might determine its ultimate decision. Just one quick follow-up. In your judgment, would the language of the Constitution support the idea of judicial review of a state legislature's action? Yeah. Look, I think that would depend in part on what the state constitution said in terms of the scope of review. But I think in the the system of checks and balances, legislation is always subject to judicial review. But I'm talking here about a state that selects a slate of electors pursuant to the scenario that you laid out, where for one reason or another, there isn't a certified election result. And it's not just the state courts I'm talking about. Uh, Is it clear that there would be a role for the federal judiciary in those circumstances? My own view is that the federal judiciary does have powers under the 14th Amendment and equal protection and due process to likely weigh in in that scenario. But I think if we're ever in a contested presidential race, it's really going to come down to the nine votes on the Supreme Court. So I think all of us um, lawyers who are not justices on the Supreme Court will have lots of opinions about it. But in that unique situation, you're going to end up making new law with a decision. But yes, I think the federal courts could. Oh, joy. Bush v. Gore (laughs) redux. Well, let's remember that Bush versus Gore was really a close election. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Uh, I yield back the balance of my time. (laughs) Okay. Ben Ginsburg played a crucial role in uh, the Bush v. Gore. Believe Uh, me, I know that. (laughs) I was joking. Letting our listeners know. Uh, Okay. Damon Linker. 
Yeah, um, I find uh, the way the conversation has been going is kind of elegant in a way because we began by focusing on the Electoral Count Act and the way these things play out when it comes to certifying electoral votes in Congress on January 6th. Then we went back with Bill's question and Kathy's even before that, pushing back toward an earlier stage in the process, which is the certification of the vote total in state legislatures, where a state legislature maybe would take the vote total and reject it and try to put up other electors instead. And I'd like to push even further back in time to the counting itself, because there's actually a very interesting and pretty alarming op-ed in the New York Times on May 12th by a uh, University of Michigan law professor named Barbara McQuaid. The title is, The Most Pivotal Elections in 2022 Are Not the Ones You Think. And this is about secretaries of state. So if it ends up being the case that in secretary of state elections coming up, you elect a bunch of Trumpy people at that very, very local, granular level, People who are quite willing to follow the advice of people like John Eastman, who, uh, you know, the Claremont Institute scholar who uh, had a lot to do with trying to encourage uh, the events of January 6th and trying to get Pence to play a role that the Constitution does not allow him in reversing the results or at least halting them and allowing more recounts to go on to muddy the results from 2020. He has also been spending a lot of time going in this other direction, and he continues to do this about even the 2020 election to kind of push back toward the beginning of the process at the level of secretaries of state and to talk to people running for these offices at the local level about the assumptions they can make about when to reject votes, when to allow votes votes that are cast, you know, the kind of muddled questions that ended up coming to the fore in Bush v. Gore about, you know, back then about butterfly ballots and, you know, half-filled circles and and X's instead of circles. And does that count? Hanging chads, Dan. Hanging chads. Yes, we (laughs) all remember that, those of us old enough for such lovely memories. You can imagine circumstances happening in a number of these States like, for instance, my home state of Pennsylvania, where where the legislature is actually quite red, quite Trumpy, but the state as a whole is actually pretty narrowly divided and tends to kind of flip-flop back between Democratic and Republican governors. And a lot of the people running for governor right now, a couple of them and a couple of the leaders are quite far out in the Trumpy fringe. You can imagine lots of scenarios where secretaries of state in states like that, like Pennsylvania, set up rules in the aftermath of an election that allow all kinds of votes to be excluded that could actually change the outcome so that it's not that the legislature has to reject the count. It's that the count is tainted at the most basic level of counting. I don't know enough about it, and I hope you do, uh, Mr. Ginsburg, to reflect on, like, is there any conceivable process that could uh, challenge that kind of an outcome at that most basic level of how the votes are counted. It is certainly important to be aware of what secretaries of state and even county and local election officials can do in terms of not honestly doing 
what the people have determined in casting their ballots. As a side note, I worry a little bit less about the Pennsylvania Secretary of State who is appointed by the governor as opposed to someone who is running independently as an election denier candidate. But there are election denier candidates in probably a third of the states and many more on the local level. And so those elections are really, really important. Now, if if you're a state or local election official, there are certain things you should not do in tabulating the vote, which is basically to deny voters their ability to cast a ballot. So that could come in the counting process. It could come in determining who's eligible to vote in the first place. It could come in recounts. It could come in the final certification. But it is certainly important that this country not give the role of counting ballots, which has historically been with professionals, and give it to politicians, because then there will not be faith in elections. And what it seems to me my fellow Republicans are ignoring is that that genie once uncorked from the bottle can hurt both sides. I mean, there are two answers to your question. Number one, just imagine Donald Trump running again in 2024 and winning, especially in a close election. Are Democrats not going to take the same rhetoric that Republicans are using now about election denial? And that's really the way democracies erode. In terms of the very practical thing that election lawyers would do, should a state or county official not faithfully use the vote of the people, would be to turn to the courts. And it could be federal courts and it could be state courts. And there are things called mandamus actions that basically require an official to do uh, what the official is supposed to do. So I can envision these election denier candidates, should they win, being able to disrupt the counting of ballots. There is a failsafe in um, in judicial review of that. All right. I am going to um, ask you to elaborate on that just a little bit more because you've been involved, as we've said, in you know representing Republicans for many years in election-related cases. And yet you just mentioned, you know, one third of the local races now feature election deniers on the Republican side. 65% of Republicans believe falsely that the 2020 election was tainted and that Joe Biden was not the legitimately elected president. And before we let you go, I'd like to hear you reflect on how you think the Republican Party is affecting our civic health at this point. Do you think the party has itself become a threat to democracy because of this undermining of faith in elections? I'm not sure I would blame the whole party for that. To me, the greatest crisis that we face is the fact that 30% of the country doesn't believe that our elections are accurate. And you can't sustain a democracy if that greater percentage don't have faith in the election results. I think that is a Republican Party problem for the most part right now, despite some Democrats doing similar things in the past. But it is a Republican Party 
problem now. And what I think is most disturbing about it is the Republicans who are remaining silent about it, that this is one of those times where you really do have to see what's happening clearly. And there are self-interested reasons that Republicans should not want to deny the accuracy of election results, which includes the scenario I mentioned before. I mean, if Donald Trump were to run in 2024 and be apparently elected, I don't think Democrats would accept that. I think election denying at some point becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when the tables get turned and they will get turned. On a more practical basis, Republicans are, are, are being, I think, short-sighted in not recognizing that the talk of elections not being accurate is going to depress turnout. You know, the other thing that's kind of ironic about this, and I co-authored an op-ed piece in the Post about this, is that if you try and throw out a ballot because of fraud, you have to throw out all the offices on that ballot. So that, in fact, state legislatures should have come to pass who want to declare fraud and say that there are so many ballots, we can't determine a result. That's going to be true for their very own elections in that state in all likelihood. So there is a corrosive effect when people say you can't accept our elections. Both parties have observers in all polling places. Both parties have the right to see the process. Elections that are transparent are a goal each state should look for. There ought to be paper ballots universally so you can actually do a recount. There probably are provisions of law that should be included to give people faith in elections. But we are in a situation where if you have 30% of the voters who don't believe our elections are accurate, you cannot sustain the democracy. And so what our main task should be is figuring out how to give people more faith in our elections and to educate the public more about all the checks and balances in our electoral system. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for being one of the people who is attempting to educate the American people about that. And uh, we really appreciate you joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Been a great discussion. All right. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break and then we will return with the discussion of abortion. Ladies, are you dreaming those bags under your eyes would just disappear? Then stop dreaming, pick up the phone, and order Genucel now. Genucel uses plant stem cell technology to help rid your beautiful face of unsightly bags and puffiness. Yes, even the ones you've had for years. Lois from Smithtown, New York wrote, I love it and use it every day. I would say the change is remarkable. It's not just Lois. I use it and it's great. It firms up the delicate skin around your eyes. And you know what's even better? Genucel works for both men and women. In fact, with its immediate effects, you may see results in as little as 12 hours. Order now and save up to 60% off on Genucel's most popular package at genucel.com. You be the judge. It's the best skincare you've ever used or your money back. Just go to genucel.com slash beg to differ. That's genucel.com slash 
beg to differ. The best skincare, the best results, or your money back, no questions asked. Genucel.com slash beg to differ. Genucel.com slash beg to differ. One more time, genucel.com slash beg to differ. Welcome back. We will now look at some of the fallout from the momentous news that the Supreme Court is going to overrule Roe v. Wade, probably. I'm going to start with you, Bill Galston. You know, the Democrats at first greeted this news with joy. You know, finally, something that will motivate their base and something that they can talk about that is not inflation, rising crime, problems at the border, and so forth. And they have really screwed this up, arguably. (laughs) I mean, Chuck Schumer introduced legislation yesterday, knowing it could not pass, the Women's Health Protection Act that had the effect not of dividing his opposition, that is the Republicans, making it a hard vote for Republicans, but rather dividing his own caucus and uniting his opposition. Do you disagree with any of that? Well, uh, you're right on the facts. (laughs) Okay. And the question was never what would happen in the Senate, that Bill had no prospects. The question is what will happen out in the country in November. And... Obviously, the Democrats could misplay their hand badly or overplay it and be tabbed as the party of extremism on abortion the same way that legitimate questions about the quality and fairness of policing morphed into the disastrous defund the police slogan. But assuming that the Democrats can avoid that trap, I persist in believing that relative to the baseline that existed before this bombshell draft decision was released, the Democrats are ahead of the game. This will be net helpful to them in the fall if they can avoid the shoals of extremism. Okay, Kathy, I'm going to bring you in here because I'm not sure I agree with Bill about that. There are a number of ways in which this could not work out to the benefit of the Democrats. One of them is partly because of what we just saw with the vote in the Senate, which is that red states are very red about this and red state politicians are not punished for extremist positions on abortion. And there's been a tremendous sorting of voters on the question. Another is that A large number of abortions these days, a majority now, are not surgical, but they are medicinal abortions, two different drugs that people take and induce a miscarriage. And then you have the fact that in the polling that shows that people, you know, broadly prefer that abortion remain legal in the first trimester, and therefore they approve of uh, maintaining Roe v. Wade, runs up against what Damon wrote about this week, which was that many people, when they are responding to polling questions about, do you support Roe v. Wade? And they say, yes, don't realize that if it's overturned, that if they live in a blue state, life doesn't change for them. And so doesn't then that raise a question about the political implications if large numbers of pro-choice voters, for them, their lives won't change. Right. Well, I think so far we're seeing in terms of the polling specifically about the midterms, 
and how they may have been affected by this announcement. So far, it doesn't seem that there has been any real movement toward the Democrats, and that may be one of the reasons. On the other hand, I think it's a little too early to tell because there's a lot still happening. You know, we still don't know exactly how that decision is going to play out when it actually comes down. And I think the other thing, what you mentioned about the medicinal abortions, what you mentioned about the fact that, you know, most of this is only going to affect primarily low-income women in red states. So, you know, blue state voters are not going to be real motivated to go to the polls. I think a lot depends on the extent to which the Democrats can, you know, correctly or not, portray the Republicans as responding to this Roe decision by overreaching and making everyone feel that the, they're, they're being threatened too. Like, you know, they're already, they're, they're, there are some noises about a possible national ban on abortion uh, if, uh, the, if Roe v. Wade is in fact overturned and then the Republicans take the majority in the Senate. And I do think that, you know, that they could actually ban all abortions nationwide could be a pretty effective message for the midterm. You know, keep the Senate Democratic if you don't want to see uh, some sort of attempt to pass a national ban on abortion. I think that could be an effective strategy. We are seeing in some of the red states, we're seeing attempts to go after the uh, you know, medicinal abortions by mail. And the, the thing, by the way, that really worries me about that is to really enforce that, you're going to need some police state tactics, really. I mean, if you think the war on drugs was bad. You know, well, and by the way, the war on yeah. drugs has been pretty ineffective at <laughs> preventing right? people oh, from yeah, getting yeah. illegal drugs that they want. <laughs> oh, of course, so, but it yeah. does occasionally result in some, you know, poor schmo going to jail for you know twenty years for not really doing very much of anything. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and we've all heard those stories. So I think if the Democrats can sort of successfully raise the specter of, you know, you really want uh, some, you know, horrible situation where a woman who maybe had a miscarriage but gets accused of uh, having bought you know, abortion medication because of a Google search that she did, or maybe that someone else in her house did, you know, and, uh, and then she's going to get sent away for 15 years. You know, I, I think yeah. if, you, if you can raise the specter of that kind of thing, you know, that kind of overreach happening and uh, you can really make people believe and, you know, maybe not without cause, that the Republicans are just waiting to unleash a reign of terror over these issues. I think you can uh, move the needle, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it requires a, a party that's smart and that focuses on the extremism on the, of the other side rather than indulging the extremists of its own side. Right, right. Damon, you've uh, written a lot of really smart things about this this week. But one thing I think I might disagree with you about, which is, no. you know, we've Amazing. But we've seen these protests at the homes of justices this week. And I think you said, correct me if I'm wrong, that, uh, you know, people have to be able to blow off steam. Do you want to elaborate on that? 
Yeah, I, I realize that this is one of these cases where uh, I'm going to um, make a lot of people unhappy in taking the position I have, but I do think it's an important one. Obviously, if it is the case, as it is the case, that there is a federal law saying that you can't protest outside the private home of a judge, especially in a case where they're still a decision is pending. In other words, the law appears to be written to prevent intimidation of a judge by a mob. And so the fear is that if there's a protest outside Justice Kavanaugh's house or, or uh, on Wednesday night this week, there was one outside of Justice Amy Coney Barrett's house with, I think, seven people dressed as like the Handmaid's Tale women in the red with the white hood. Um, oh, that'll the, persuade the, her. The, well, I mean, <laughs> that's kind of part of my point. Like, I'm not that worried, really. Um, clearly... I think Congress was right this week through a unanimous voice vote to approve more security protection for the justices and their families in this situation. So that's good. But by the same token, yes, even if it is a matter of legality, prosecutors and law enforcement routinely, namely pretty much always exercise discretion. And given the fact that uh, half the population of the United States has enjoyed a constitutional right to abortion for 49 years, and the court is, appears poised to roll that back and eliminate it from the Constitution. I do think that one of the ways that you keep democracy functioning is you need to allow people who are mad about an injustice to express that. And so we should show leniency in these cases. Now, that doesn't mean being stupid, which would be like not putting cops out there in the protest. Yes, there should be law enforcement there. If the crowd gets too large, too boisterous, seems to be coming unruly, there's any threat of violence, then yes, it needs to be broken up and people perhaps arrested. That's just reasonable, of course. But the general rule of thumb should be, I think, in this case, all right, if you're going to roll back the constitutional rights of women in this way after half a century, it's okay for them to be a little pissed off for a while, and we're going to have a, a light touch in this case. I, I do think that's a kind of prudent response to the reality of the moment, even though by the letter of the law, uh, you know, those people should be uh, dispersed quickly, and if they refuse, they should be arrested. I, I just think that it's a, a better move to, again, exercise a lighter touch. Okay. I beg to differ. Okay. And I think that people's right to protest laws that they disagree with or decisions they disagree with are absolutely a sacrosanct part of democracy and they should be done in the right place and at the right time. Protest all you want in front of the Supreme Court building. Write letters to the editor, call your Congress people, call your state legislators, agitate, do all of that but stay away from people's homes. The minute you start congregating outside someone's home, it is almost inevitably an act of intimidation. People have kids at home, their wives, husbands. I mean, it is absolutely out of bounds for crowds to try to protest in front of people's homes. That should be sacrosanct. That should be walled off as illegitimate, and it already is in the law, and it should be vigorously enforced. Nobody should ever 
Could I just very briefly respond? I mean, I hear what you're saying. I'm usually pretty much on the law and order side of things, but I do think this is something close to an unprecedented situation, or at least one that has only happened in American history a very small number of times. But, you know, I think Chuck Schumer, who is definitely not one of my favorite people this week because of his (laughs) role in bringing that vote to the floor in the Senate for, I think, frankly, for the sake of ensuring he doesn't get a challenge from the left. Uh, So this was more about Chuck Schumer than it was about the country or the Democrats as a party and their prospects. I do think he had a valid point when he said, Look, there are protests outside my apartment building all the time in New York. You know, this is just politics. And so there's a weird way in which part of the subtext of this debate is like the difference between a city and a suburb, that somehow a suburban house is more vulnerable and it's somehow uh, more illegitimate if there's a crowd gathering on a leafy, pretty suburban street with a big house there versus, you know, a teeming, busy urban center where then it wouldn't be such a big deal. And and that, I think, two points to uh, the need for a little bit of flexibility, perhaps. All right. I I know Bill Galston wants to make another point, and we will do that after we take this brief break. If you're like me, you share your home, not just with humans, but with animal friends. And while they're wonderful companions, they also have odors, they have dander, they have hair. Well, let me talk to you about Eden Pure Thunderstorm Air Purifiers. Their proven oxy technology quickly destroys viruses, odors, mold, and more. It cleans the air of allergy-causing particles so you can breathe easy again, and it freshens up your home. It gets rid of any odor, like litter boxes, trash cans, cigarette smoke, even dirty diapers and cooking smells. With over 200,000 thunderstorms sold, you know it works. You never have to breathe dirty air again, and there are no filters to buy, and it takes up no floor space. You just plug this unit into the wall. It's almost silent, so it's great for use in any room, really. You can use it in your bedroom. We do. And we also have one in the room where the cat's litter box is. And honestly, of course, I'm very diligent about cleaning the cat's litter box, but with the Eden Pure, you would never know it was there. Plus, all the units come with a six-foot USB cord, and so they are compact, great for traveling. You can use it in hotel rooms or wherever you might be going. So go to EdenPureDeals.com, enter the discount code MONA3 to save $200. That's three thunderstorm air purifiers for under $200. Shipping is free. Okay, Bill Galston, you wanted to make another point, or did you want to add to this uh, discussion between Damon and me? Another point or two. Okay. Yes, I too wrote something about the abortion issue this week. It was my weekly column in the Wall Street Journal. Apparently, it doesn't fall into the really smart category, but it does. (laughs) I just hadn't gotten there yet. Don't be sensitive. (laughs) it It does round up all of the data that has become available on the abortion issue since the leaked draft decision. And I think it offers substantial evidence that a demobilized Democratic electorate has been 
affected deeply by this news. For the first time that I can remember, you now have a higher percentage of Democrats saying that they put this issue first and that they won't vote for anybody who does not share their position on abortion. So opinion has moved within the Democratic Party very sharply in the past couple of weeks on this issue, and I do Mm -hmm. not expect that to subside. Point number two, the political salience. Let me read the names of seven states, Nevada, Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, and New Hampshire. You may recognize this list as most of the swing states in the country. They also have Senate races this fall that will decide who controls the Senate. And you better believe that Democrats are going to be pushing this issue in those states. And so the language of you know, voters in blue states versus voters in red states overlooks the fact that there are still enough swing states by far to determine the outcome of the senatorial contest. And we ought to be paying careful attention to what's going on there. Okay. Kathy, I want to come back to you. First, I just want to make an observation, which is, it's understandable. I mean, this is a really huge, huge decision, and it's a huge change to the law that people have come to rely on for 49 years. But people on the left keep saying that it's a very radical decision. And I have to say that if it stands as written, it's not as radical as the original Roe decision itself, because the pure analogy to what happened in Roe would be if this court were to find a right to life in the Constitution and rule that having evaluated the right to privacy or some other you know, penumbras of emanations of rights that are listed in the Constitution, that they had found a right to life and that it would henceforth be unconstitutional to permit abortion under any circumstances anywhere in the country, that would be the analog. So that's just an observation. But I I would like you to discuss a couple things. First, it is distressing, isn't it, that if this does become law, though, that it will disproportionately affect poor women right? Because wealthy women will still, or middle class, they'll still be able to travel to states that permit abortion, whereas poor women will be the ones who will really be stuck, right? And that is one aspect of this that's distressing. Right. And I think many people have pointed out that this was also the situation prior to Roe v. Wade, where First of all, some states had already liberalized abortion laws, so there were states you could travel to. Some women traveled abroad. So in that sense, I think it it may revert somewhat to the pre-Roe situation. Uh, I think, obviously, the availability of uh, medicinal abortion uh, does make a difference here. We're also probably, I'm guessing, going to see more of a support network that didn't exist prior to Roe, where I think you, you have a lot of women's groups that are already prepared to launch an effort to uh, support women who need help, either traveling or uh, purchasing abortion medication online. So I think it may not really go back to the pre-Roe situation in that sense. But yeah, obviously, there is still going to be that um, economic element that is going to be very real. 
Damon, because this is America, there's always a racial element to every major public policy issue. And um, there is a racial element here that's really fraught. For example, the non-Hispanic black abortion rate is almost four times higher than the white abortion rate. And this has been viewed differently by the left and the right, and people on the right, including Justice Clarence Thomas, have gone so far as to suggest that this is some sort of a uh, plot to uh, keep down the black population in America, some sort of eugenics thing. And of course, you know, on the left, people say, well, this is going to hurt black women who are going to be deprived of this right. So um, it's a delicate thing to talk about, but what's your... Oh, and there's one more aspect, sorry, and that is this, that one has the suspicion... (laughs) That at least among some people who count themselves as pro-lifers, and many, many people who are pro-life are genuine and sincere in their belief, but there may be some who are sort of imagining that the babies they're saving are little white babies, whereas... In fact, they're really going to be saving a lot, from their perspective, many, many, many more dark-skinned babies. I don't know. What do you make of all that? Well, it is pretty messy. Uh, I mean, I, I agree. I, I mean, I many years ago, I used to work at First Things Magazine, and that was definitely one of the lines of uh, its founder and editor-in-chief, Richard John Newhouse, that there was a civil rights dimension to the uh, pro-life uh, crusade, and not just in the sense that by Newhouse's lights, uh, the attempt to save the most vulnerable from the infliction of lethal violence was itself a civil rights issue, but also what you just described, that the very strong, a very large portion of abortions are taking place in the black community. And so a genuinely welcoming liberalism, and Newhouse did like to think about and describe himself as a true liberal, would kind of open the arms of uh, our polity to the most vulnerable, namely the unborn, and, and and very much including the unborn of black mothers, Hispanic mothers, and so forth. So that that has been a talking point for a long time, and it is rooted in that truth which you cited, which is that abortion are taking place at quite a bit higher rates uh, in the black community. Part of that is a class factor uh, in general. You know, wealthier, more well-to-do women are using contraception and using it in a way that is effective, that keeps them from getting pregnant in the first place. Therefore, there are fewer abortions. I would add, I guess the only thing I would really add to that as my own take is that we have to keep in mind that the black population in the deep red states where you will see considerable constriction of abortion rights is lower than the portion of the black population in blue states. So, uh, you know, the states that have high black populations tend to be states where nothing is going to change with this. So, I, I, I mean, I understand why Democrats are saying that this is going to impact the black community uh, and minorities more severely. That That's a kind of tick among Democrats these days. I've even seen seen. The ACLU had a particularly risable tweet earlier this week where they said something like, uh, getting rid of Roe v. Wade 
rate is going to disproportionately hurt the LBGT community. <laughs> and I, and like, there was a lot of hubbub on Twitter about this because it's quite funny. The thought that <laughs> actually, no, this is one of the things that affects the heterosexual community more than any other. <laughs> yeah, um, don't take is. that away from me. Um, so, yeah. And I've uh, seen some really convoluted explanations, by the way, of why this is true. Like, Oh, well, this is going to lead to the downfall of the, decision that legalized same-sex marriage so this is how it's going to backfire against I consider that to be a, uh, that's a valid uh, kind of legal slippery slope argument because the right to privacy, which is kind of the source code for all of these social liberalism based decisions uh, that underline Lawrence v. Texas and the other decisions, including Obergefell, all sort of emanate from the right to privacy as delineated in Griswold v. Connecticut and and a number of rightly jurists have taken aim at that. All the way back to Robert Bork, uh, this has been a big target for them. So there is the risk that if the right becomes even more emboldened, they could try to overturn Griswold. And if they did that, these other precedents would likely Yeah, and Lawrence v. Texas. Could I comment on that? Because it's true that the judicial heritage of the Roe case is the right to privacy. And yes, also it's implicated in these other cases. But the big thing that the critics miss is that once you say, okay, fine, that these matters can be returned to the states, it very much matters where public opinion is. And the reason that abortion is different from these other matters is that abortion still remains contentious, whereas even vast majorities of Republicans now favor same-sex marriage. There is no constituency anywhere in the country for limiting contraception. There wasn't even at the time that Griswold was decided. It was They picked on a law that was never enforced in order to make a point. So, you know, the idea that Obergefell or Griswold or Lawrence v. Texas is next, I think, is ignores the fact that there would have to be state legislatures who were prepared to pass such laws, and there aren't. No, I yeah, agree well, with not- you. I, yeah. Go ahead, Kathy. I, I think we probably agree on that. Right. Well, I was also going to say, I don't know that there is even the political will to undertake another huge fight on a whole bunch of other social issues. Uh, we're Assuming that Roe does go, I think we're going to be tied up on abortion wars for the foreseeable future. So I don't yeah. really even see the energy for any other big social issues fights. I agree with that. I just briefly to say, uh, I mean, there's also the fact that the pro-life fight has always been about what the pro-lifers consider to be an act of murder. None of these other issues rise to that level of moral urgency. And so I don't think there will be that kind of energy behind any of them. All right. And with that, we will take a quick break and return with our highlights and lowlights of the week. This episode of Beg to Differ is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show, which features in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds, like Charles Koch and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Every Friday, Jordan also releases a Feedback Friday episode to respond to listener questions, covering everything from conventional problems like leaving a dream job to doozies like helping someone escape an abusive relationship. You can also hear the latest news about Russia featuring a heavy-hitting interview with Garry Kasparov and his experiences with authoritarian governments, and that's just the beginning. 
Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Okay, I will start with you, Kathy Young. Highlight or low light? Oh, let's see. Uh, well, the I think the low light um, comes from uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, as is often the case with her comments about Ukraine, which I thought were just uh, mind-boggling, as always. She's made these comments about, you know, we, we have money to give Ukraine, but we don't have money for that baby formula. And then she tried to spin that as, oh, you know, it's really cruel that we're doing this to the Ukrainians who are getting killed, you know, even though the Ukrainians certainly want to keep fighting. <laughs> I think that's pretty clear. And I'm going to say, I, I'm going to stick to Ukraine and say that the highlight is, I don't know if you saw the the uh, speech that Volodymyr Zelensky gave on May 9th on uh, what is considered Victory Day in both Russia and Ukraine, the, the mark, marking the victory over Nazi Germany in 1945. That was just a masterful speech. I mean, that man is, you know, he just never ceases to amaze me. Like He sees the momentum in a way that was just remarkable. And he basically ended up saying, you know, we're going to end up having uh, two victory days soon, meaning that they're going to have another victory over Russia. And some people may not even have one left, referring to, you know, how tainted victory day is now in Russia. So that is definitely the highlight. Thank you. I hadn't seen the speech. I will look it up. Thank you so much. Damon Linker. Uh, well, I'm going to diverge from the politics uh, for my highlight of the week to uh, point at a book that I'm very much enjoying reading. Uh, it's by the British author Jeff Dyer, spelled G-E-O-F-F and Dyer, D-Y-E-R. The book is The Last Days of Roger Federer and Other Endings. And no, I am not a massive tennis fan. Uh, Roger Federer is is a small, very small part of this book. Uh, to give you a sense of what it's like, I will simply read Steve Martin, the comedian's uh, blurb from the back of the book, because it does a good job. Tennis, jazz, Dylan, movies, drugs, Nietzsche, Beethoven. So why am I laughing? Because Jeff Dyer once again melds commentary and observation with intellect and wit. Bouncing between criticism and memoir, Dyer is one of the few writers whose paragraphs I can immediately reread and get more from. The twists, turns, and delights abound, and when you finally put the book down, you think, oh yes, I've always been this smart, haven't I? Uh, so it's a, it's a really delightful read. Wow. It, it really does range widely. It's written kind of an aphorism form like Nietzsche's works are where each chapter is divided into numbered sections that are only a page or two long. And the delight is as much the content of each as it is the strange juxtapositions and contrasts between one and the next. So I, I, uh, I recommend it to listeners. Excellent. Thank you so much. Bill Galston. I have a low light and a high light. My low light, and I hate to blow the whistle on my own team, is the Biden administration's attack on charter schools. Explaining why I'm disturbed about this would take more time than I have, but I am afraid that this reflects 
the influence of teachers' unions on the Biden administration more than it reflects the interests of either children or parents or the country as a whole. And there's been a lot of pushback, and I hope the Biden administration just abandons this effort to rein in charter schools, which already have more than their share of problems. My highlight plays on the distinction between highlight as a noun, which is generally praiseworthy, and highlight as a verb which underscores something neglected. I call our listeners' attention to the fact that something very interesting is happening in French politics in the wake of the presidential election. There will be legislative elections in June, and for the first time in my lifetime, there is a united front of the left. The socialists who did terribly in the French elections have thrown in with the party that is somewhere between Bernie Sanders and the communists, which did about five times as well as the socialists and others, including the communists. And the results of the French legislative elections could be quite surprising if this broad popular front holds. And Bill, during the presidential election, if I recall correctly, if you had added up all of the left-wing parties together, they would have been a sizable chunk of the electorate, right? The leader of the main left party, France Insoumise, France Unbowed, by himself, this is Mr. Mélenchon, received 22% of the popular vote and Mm -hmm. nearly edged out Le Pen as Mm -hmm. the Mm second-round challenger to Macron. So, yes, Macron has destroyed the longstanding traditional center-left and center-right parties, which together didn't get 10% of the vote. And uh, he has empowered the far right and the far left. And if he stumbles, the consequences for French politics and therefore for Europe could be profound. All right. Thank you for that. I would like to cite a highlight. I want to praise a movie. I watched Coda, which I guess has won a lot of awards, including Academy Awards. And I want to say, when I watched this film, I just realized how much I missed a movie that is not disturbing, that is not dark, that is not about the wretched side of human nature. Now, admittedly, I watch those shows. I need to keep myself occupied when I'm on my stationary bike. And I, you know, I watch Unforgotten and I watch Slow Horses and I watch Succession and I enjoy them. But it is so nice to see a movie for once. It was pretty vulgar. But other than that, it is nice to see a movie that is about something else. It is about a more positive take on the human spirit. This is a story about a one member of a, a deaf family, the daughter who is hearing. And it's a coming-of-age story. It's also a family story. And uh, just lovely. Highly recommend it. And with that, I want to thank everyone. I want to thank Ben Ginsberg again for joining us. And I want to thank all of our listeners. Our producer is Katie Cooper. Our sound engineer this week is Joe Armstrong. I want to thank them. And I, of course, want to thank all of our listeners and especially those who have taken the time and trouble to rate and review us. That is assuming you do it positively. All right. And with that, we will return next week as every week.